0: The opening quote is from the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle length discourses of the Buddha. He says, My friends, it is through the establishment of the lovely clarity of mindfulness that you can let go of grasping after past and future, overcome attachment and grief, abandon all clinging and anxiety and awaken to an unshakable freedom of heart here and now. Does this sound good to you? Let me hit a few of the high points again. Some of the high points. We can let go of grasping or chasing after the past or the future. We can actually let our past go. It's over. And we don't have to chase after the future. It's not here yet. Now is the knowing. We can overcome attachment and grief. And I don't think it means overcome it by bypassing it or getting rid of it or othering it. It's actually like including it so much that we can overcome the struggle with it. Let it be. Abandon all clinging and anxiety. I will not ask for a show of hands of how many of us experience anxiety from time to time. Actually, you know what I will. We need to normalize this. How many of you experience anxiety from time to time? So if you're not looking, you don't know that every just about, or every hand in the hall just raised. This is something we have to work with as human beings. It's not a personal problem or failing. And there are ways to work and transform and awaken to an unshakable freedom of heart here and now. It's a beautiful invitation. Personally, I'm signed up for this. So the reflection this evening is going to be on the theme of the body and the body as teacher, the teachings connected with the body. Because we all know landing here on this retreat that we landed here in a body and we came in here from high speeds, many of us, and now we're just still, or at least trying to be still. Sometimes we look around and everyone else looks so still and together. And we just feel like we're a vibrating mass of anxiety or frenetic energy. In fact, many of us have had this today, if not most of us. So teachings on the body, very important. And because it's the first night of the retreat, I thought I'd open with a story. Um, It's been a long day, and uh, we all have a part of ourselves, I think, somewhere in there that just likes to hear a story at night. There's a lot of conditioning around that through the generations, cross-culturally. So this is a personal story. And I share it because it's about the body, but particularly because I learned so much about my own spiritual path and and how the body is a teacher through this particular incident that happened to me in 2014. In 2014, I returned to India and spent hundred days there. Uh, so I spent hundred days in meditation, studying the teachings, doing some um, very high-end adventure uh, across the Himalayas, quite exciting. And about halfway through this journey, we landed in a small Indian town that was a haven for Tibetan Buddhism. So there were many temples there. And the town was centered around a sacred lake. But that won't tell you much in India about where it was, because there are many, many sacred lakes in India. So this was yet another sacred lake. And found a guest house overlooking the sacred lake, which was lovely. And it was also quite near one of the many Tibetan temples. And so one day, it was in the afternoon, I was doing some study of something in the Dharma. And I heard this commotion outside. And so I went and I looked out the window. And lo and behold, there was this large Tibetan temple. And the roof sloped like this. And it was made of metal. And it was still in the monsoon, so it was torrential rains. Everything was wet, and it smelled a particular way. Certainly the roof of this temple was very wet, this metal roof. And the commotion I was hearing was monkeys. And not just monkeys, but baby monkeys. And the baby monkeys had decided that this temple roof was a slide. I mean, it even looked like a slide to me. It made perfect sense. And so what they decided to do was climb up to the very top of the roof of the temple, and what I was hearing was them sliding down the roof, and they were making this noise, I kid you not, that sounded something like, whee! <laughs> yeah, we're not as different as we think. So here are these baby monkeys, "wee," And I love to connect this with a common metaphor for the mind, which is so helpful to remember during retreats and at the beginning of the retreats is, is the mind is kind of a monkey, the monkey mind. And, and so to actually re-remember what, when we say the mind is like a monkey, what are monkeys like? Yeah. So one of the ways that monkeys are, and the mind can be a monkey, is the sense of we, right? Everything's a slide. The moments when your mind was excited and playful, and you were planning your next novel, your next garden, your next I don't know what, because you actually had time. You know? And it's that kind of mind. And that can be held in awareness ah, it's like this. We don't have to then uh, start making phone calls in the middle of the retreat for the gardening. Uh, team and our agent and whatever. It's just that kind of mind. Now the thing about this slide, this temple roof was at the bottom of it was, I don't know, a three or four story drop to the ground and of course, just like our minds not thinking of the dangers of kind of going out and getting so excited that we're no longer present these baby monkeys hadn't thought of that either and so they're going, we, and then they get to the end and fortunately the mother's showed right up at the edge of that temple roof and caught them. It was amazing. They were right there. And that's another way that we can relate with our minds. Mary Grace was talking about being our own grandmother, our own wise, caring grandmother. We can also bring in qualities of minds that are a wise, caring, nurturing aspect and catch it and go, ah, mindfulness intervention, I'm totally lost in wee mind. And now I'm back. And here's the breath, totally available to be known. Here's this body sitting here. Not in Tahiti, not in Sicily, (coughs) here, ready to be known. So sometimes the monkeys were like that. Sometimes the monkeys were the opposite. They were they got caught in craving and they were even hostile. And so i watched these territory wars happen between gangs of monkeys and um, gangs of dogs that lived in the area. And sometimes those territory battles got quite fierce, you know, growling and snarling and snapping at each other. And our minds are like that. We start to get irritated with anything, with everything. I'm sure that's happened for some of us. Now, wait a second, just because I took my blanket off the chair, didn't you know that it was mine? I was told to take it off if I wasn't using it, so I did. But I really want that chair, and now you're in it and grrrr. In the mind, it grrrrs. It's like that. And again, we can have that mindfulness intervention. See, this is what's happening. What does this mean? It means it's the first day of the retreat. The mind isn't settled and collected enough yet. It might take 20 minutes or two hours before we catch the fact that we're just in... But it's never too late. So that's the context of monkeys. Here's the story about monkeys. In the sacred lake in this town, there were sacred fish. Don't ask me to explain this. This was just what I was told. So there's a sacred lake and there's sacred fish in it. And the practice of that community was to circumambulate around the lake. That means that you're walking in a circle, oh, it was a good maybe mile and a half, I don't know, around that lake. And so I'd watch the locals circumambulate. Sometimes they were saying mantras, you know, Om Mani Padme Hum, Om Mani Hum, Om Mani Hum, which is a mantra of compassion, of heart. Sometimes they were doing their prayers, Some of them were clearly walking for exercise in tennis shoes, moving really fast the way we do when we exercise. Others were walking around that lake talking with friends and catching up. So there are all kinds of ways that this lake was used for practice and presence and connection. Another thing that happened at that lake is that you could buy special fish cookies to feed to the sacred fish in the spirit of connection, and blessing. Now, I'm not so sure if these cookies were actually healthy for the fish. They weren't fish food. They were actually wheat-based cookies. But they were the cookies that were being sold. And they were being sold by Indian women with their children around them. And, you know, it was a great way to support the local economy. So sometimes I would buy fish cookies and go and feed the fish and do my loving-kindness practice and offer blessings and feel blessed. So one day I was deciding to do this and I got the fish cookies and I started walking towards the lake as I had done several days before. There were very, very few Westerners in this town at this time because it was still full monsoon. The conditions were not pleasant. Monsoon means the most torrential rains we get in the U.S. except hot, steamy, um, impossible to stay dry, impossible to keep the mold off. So, kind of like the East Coast, sometimes monsoons. So it meant that the locals got to know who I was. You know, I became a familiar face because I looked different um, and acted different, and I wasn't a local. And so I'm walking by, and one of the shopkeepers waves to me and says, and, and points kind of far away, and goes, "Ma'am, ma'am, monkey." And I thought, oh, how nice! He's pointing out the monkeys to me, and I said, yes, monkey, and and kept walking. And you know, so there's some monkeys far away, and, and one of them started to come towards me, and and as a, it was quite far away, started so comes towards me. I, I noticed, oh, that's a rather large monkey. That seems to be the leader of the pack, and so I noticed it, and I continued walking. I completely clueless of the conditions I was in wasn't tracking the fact that I was carrying fish cookies. So here's this monkey, it's rather large, continuing to come towards me. And it's coming closer, and I'm realizing that it's really quite large. I mean, like about this large, the monkey. And then I turn around, and I notice that there's monkeys coming from behind me as well. I sort of looked around. Oh, okay... So fear arose in that moment, the way that it does, when we realize, maybe I've got a situation. You know, and it could be a meeting at work, it could be on a dark street at night, it could be in an Indian village with monkeys, but we've all had those moments. Oh, I think I might have a situation here. And fear arises. And I noticed it right away. It was like, it filled me. And um, I I knew the monkeys were one of my cookies. I knew that this monkey was too big for me to, like, stand down. And I also had the knowledge that sometimes, occasionally, monkeys in this area were rabid. And my mind was quickly making calculations. All this was happening, like, about this fast. And then I remembered that it was about 15 hours by car to the nearest rabies shot that I was aware of. And at that point, fear really arose. And it flooded me. And I wish I could say to you that I had a beautifully mindful moment. And that just like the Buddha did with the mad elephant in one story that was raging mad and racing towards him with all of the intensity of that anger. What the Buddha did was radiate loving kindness so intensely that it stopped the elephant in his tracks and the elephant bowed down and stopped the war, ended that reactivity. I wish I could tell you that I did that and that happened, but that's not what happened. What happened was I screamed at the top of my lungs and ran like hell. That's what actually happened. Sometimes it's skillful to scream at the top of our lungs and run like hell. Metaphorically or literally. This practice doesn't always have to look good. It doesn't have to look right all the time. It needs to be real. It needs to be authentic and it needs to meet the actual conditions. So that's part one of the story. from the from Buddha. Just as someone who mentally encompasses the great ocean will include in that all the rivers that run into the ocean. So somebody who's like calling in through our minds the great ocean and all the rivers that run into it. So too, whomever develops mindfulness directed to the body will include all of the skillful states that support supreme understanding one of the things this sutta is saying is that mind and body aren't separate if we're directing awareness and attention to the body we're also including all the states inside that support that and include that interconnected with that means we need to be kind and gentle and wise in relation to the body body's our teacher So many teachers, the natural world, the people that we have in our lives that inspire us, whether we personally know them or not, the body also is a teacher. So the famous teaching from the Buddha around this goes like this. In this fathom-long body, the whole of the Dharma is revealed. So I liked that when I first heard it, because when I came into meditation, I was in low-level but continual chronic pain from a car accident. I was quite young, 17 years old. I was in one of those situations that I'm sure some of you have had where the body looked young and healthy and strong, but the internal experience of the body was body as broken, as fragile, as vulnerable, as painful. And the difficulty of that not being seen by others, as well as the difficulty of the actual experience. So, when I heard in this fathom long body, the whole of the Dharma is revealed, I thought, okay, great. So, he, the Buddha didn't say in a perfectly healthy, resilient, best day ever body, the whole of the Dharma is revealed. He just said the body. So, maybe there's something for me here. So, what does it mean? the whole of the body is revealed as pointing to the way that we suffer and the way that we free ourselves from suffering. Right here, same body. However it is, you're in an illness, getting over an illness, having health. One of my favorite lines from Thich Nhat Hanh, who knows suffering, is he smiles and he goes, no toothache. Okay, a few of you got it. No toothache. Can we actually notice when there isn't trouble? We have a really strong habit, some of us, of waiting for the other shoe to drop, like, okay, things are good, but uh uh-oh, something's going to happen next. How about just no toothache? How many of you have no toothache tonight? That's so great.
1: Not everybody,
0: but uh, most people. How many of you can actually take that in and celebrate the lack of toothache? I mean, you might as well. (laughs) Some people are like, yeah, actually I want to take that on. Good. You might as well because there will always be something. And no toothache is metaphorical. When we have a toothache, we can say no sprained ankle. So I'm interested in researching the background stories of some of these really well-known teachings. So background story in this fathom long body Um, This comes from a commentary by S. N. Goenka. And the backstory, or at least one of the backstories, concerns a deva. Now, if you're not familiar with devas, um, in the Buddhist world, it's acknowledged that there's the possibility of unseen benevolent forces. In the Western world, we tend to call those angels. So you don't have to believe in anything but how about just opening to the possibility of unseen benevolent forces or energies? So this is about a deva named Rohita. A deva named Rohita once passed in front of the monastery where the Buddha was sitting. And this deva was singing, Keep walking, keep walking, keep walking, keep walking. Now, of course, I don't know what the tune was, but that's my tune for this story. Questioned by the Buddha, Rohita said, so the Buddha basically said, why are you walking? And why are you saying, keep walking? Rohita said he was walking to explore the entire world and then beyond the entire world. The Buddha smiled and explained, Rohita, the entire universe, its cause, its cessation, And the way to its cessation are found within the framework of the body. Right here. Not somewhere else. Right here. And so what this last line is pointing to, the entire universe, its cause of cessation and the way to its cessation, is a pointing into the Four Noble Truths. One of the fundamental teachings of this tradition. So I'm not going to teach on that. But I'll just share it as a reminder, and for those of you that are new, in my own words, which are different than the words you'll read in the suttas. And I would highly encourage you with these foundational teachings to find your own words. So that you're actually saying them to yourself and talking about them with a friend in your own voice, not somebody else's. So the way I put them simply First noble truth, it's not easy being a human being living a life. Full stop. Second noble truth, the basic cause of our dis-ease is struggle, sometimes called craving. Third noble truth, peace is possible. Same body, same family of origin, same job or lack of it, same life. Peace is possible, same world. Fourth Noble Truth, there's a path to peace. And it involves nurturing our sense of basic integrity, meditation, and wisdom. So then we have to ask, what is a body? What is it? I mean, if I ask you to point to your body, I'm figuring you'll know where to point. So we have some idea of where it is, other bodies. But in the meditation world, the body is composed of the four great elements that John mentioned this morning. The earth element, the bones, the weight, the solidity, the water element, the saliva, the blood, the way that things flow and are also cohesive in the body. The fire element, which doesn't just include heat and that which generates heat in the body, but also coolness, the range of temperature experienced in this body. You know, just check right now. You don't know, have to do anything special. Do you notice a part that's really warm or really cool in the body? This fire element. And the air element is the of course the breath, but also the element of vibration in the body. Space as an element is contained within the body. It's not really of the body, but within the body. And it's nice to remember that there's plenty of space when we're having a lot of reactivity or strong emotions. We can take a deeper breath and say, Oh, there's enough air to breathe with what I'm feeling right now. And, oh, when I take a deeper breath, I can experience this space in the body. There's enough room for this moment as I'm experiencing it. So this is all pointing to the first foundation of mindfulness, right? Talk about these ways we can train in mindfulness. And the body's the first. We start there. It always feels important to name that on an absolute level, there is no body. Body's a label. Body's actually a field of sensations in space and for functional reasons and because it's helpful we can point to this and say this is a hand and we can point to this whole thing and say this is my body and it's totally true but it's also true that it's not what it appears there's a field of sensations we're invited into not a body that's solid and separate and unchanging that we gotta try to control I mean good luck I know we all try to control this thing but good luck You ever wake up in the morning and go, gee, I think today I'll fall and uh, get a bruise and then maybe there'll be a pimple here and uh, bad breath. We don't do that, but it happens, right? It's so important to listen to these bodies as teachers. It's not easy. It hasn't been an easy journey for me, but very worthwhile. I want to share with you a short story about this. Um, Somebody that I worked with individually for some years. And she worked in the medical field and in the kind of um, emergency level of the medical field. And she loved her work. She loved the people that she worked with. She loved being able to save lives. Uh, She had a personality that was very well suited for the Um, Stress and the excitement and the responsibility of her work. And she did it for many years. And at a certain point, something changed quite quickly for her around her work. She got a a, a different job than the one she'd had and it was stressful in a (laughs) particularly different way. And basically what happened was very quickly she started to burn out. And you know, she was trained to be tough in her work and, and to be physically strong, to be mentally and emotionally strong because you know, it's life and death issues. And so at first she ignored it. And then she fought it. And as we continued talking, she described her experience like this. She said, you know, I have to listen to my body because it's crashing and burning on me. She described what she was noticing in mindfulness and awareness. She said, you know, my neck is contracting, and now it's hurting all the time. Every time I go to work, and even when I'm off work and I think about work. She said, you know, in my heart, it's starting to race, and I feel this pressure sometimes, and it took me a while to realize it's anxiety. She described how her head would tell her how she should be practical and suck it up and work it out. Some of us are highly trained this way mentally. Be practical, suck it up, work it out. But her body knew. And her body knew that she had to take a break, to take a sabbatical. It was such a privilege for me to be in contact with her during this time, during this journey as she started to explore this and understand it and realize that she actually had to make a change in her life and take a sabbatical I'll never forget when she said to me you know I have to listen to my body my body knows I don't know my body knows isn't that amazing and so she went into a sabbatical period and, and worked on getting some other work to take care of herself during that period she hopes to go back and we don't know So to go back to the story of the monkeys and the circumambulation. Now what happened there? Because what happened there for me was very much a listening to the body. What happened was there was a frightening situation that was threatening to my physical safety. Now I want to name something that's really obvious. Our nervous systems and our bodies love it when we name the totally obvious repeatedly. And insight meditation is set up to support us to name the totally obvious repeatedly. Breathe in, breathe out, thinking, planning, remembering, excitement, sadness, ache, breathe in, breathe out. We're naming the obvious repeatedly. So I realized that I'd had a nervous system response of flight. Fight was not the appropriate response. With my conditioning, I was not going to be able to stand down this monkey that was this big. So, the system responded, there was a flight response. To me, the key of this whole story is what did not happen after I screamed at the top of my lungs and ran like hell. Because it got the attention of everybody in that part of the village. And everybody came to their doors, the shopkeepers, people were like looking out windows. This American woman had just caused a scene in a small Indian village. And if you know me as a personality, you would know that that is the last thing that I ever want to do. And it had just happened. So, what didn't happen? What didn't happen was judgment. That's huge. Anytime you notice that you could have been judging yourself or somebody else and you're not, That's a no-toothache moment. Don't miss it. Notice the lack of judgment. Notice the cessation of that pattern and celebrate. It'll come back. But it's so important. Because judgment didn't happen, in part because I understood this was just the body taking care of its own survival. This is important information for us to have. The judgment didn't happen, and it allowed me to continue feeling connected with myself, And then instead of looking down and falling into a shame spiral, which would have been so easy in those conditions, all these people I don't know looking at me, and there was some laughter, I could have easily fallen into a story and meaning-making that I was being laughed at. I'll never know if I was being laughed at. So do we really have to weave a story about it? No, but sometimes we do. It does so much compassion when we do. But none of that happened. Grace visited in that moment. And so I was actually able to look up and look around and see that in fact, everyone had looks of concern on their faces, even the ones that were laughing. Ma'am, ma'am, are you okay? When the tunnel doesn't close in, we can hear the concern. We can connect and not feel isolated. And then we can reconnect more deeply with ourselves. And then we can move on and say, Hey, I survived, it's over. And that's really what happened. It was a non-personal nervous system response and I realized I survived, I was fine. And truthfully, I went and bought another bag of fish cookies and went and fed the fish. (laughs) What else are you gonna do? Things happen, the car almost hits us. Sometimes we swear like crazy, or we swear at them, or we hit the horn and we get really, really angry because we're so scared and we didn't catch it because, you know, that's what happens. Sometimes you go, wow, that was a close call. Let me take a deeper breath. Let me shake it off. And let me keep driving because i got somewhere to go. All kinds of ways it can happen, right? This practice allows for all of that it's really important to acknowledge that. This practice allows for all of that. It doesn't have to look a certain way. So in the first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body, there's a part of it that talks about how we calm the body. It's referred to as calming the bodily formation. And that's what I want to do a little bit about for the rest of the reflection. And then we'll practice with it some in the instructions tomorrow morning. This is kind of the intro the overview. So I want to offer a couple of teachings from Ajahn Suchito, who is one of the elders, a Western elder, monastic in the Thai forest tradition. And he renders this Pali word, Kaya Sankara, as bodily energy. We need to be in deep relationship with this bodily energy. So these teachings are actually from his blog. In this day and age, monks, western monks, anyway, blog. So here's the first one. Modern life is backless. Use a chair. Legless, use wheels. And segmented. We live in the upper 10% of our bodies most of the time. Most people don't experience a whole balanced body. The body that they experience is formed day after day by the impact of images from screens or the shock effect of stress. That needs to be addressed and undone. And he says, I don't think you can do that alone just through the mind or the will or even devotion." So one of the ways I take that is, it takes a multi-pronged approach to decondition what we're being offered in this world at this time. That calming the bodily formation, that mindfulness of the nervous system itself, I feel is one of the most important dharmas of our times. We're going for the root. Because if we go for the root, which is ancient, the nervous system does not care if we have letters after our name, or what jobs we have, or what our socioeconomic status is, or anything else. It's ancient and has wisdom and information. But if we're not in relationship with it, if we don't know how to bring it back in harmony, it gets out of whack and it stays out of whack sometimes for a long time. He continues another memo. At the level of energy, body and mind are not separate. They use the same nervous system. Therefore, stressed body equals stressed mind, and easing the whole body equals easing the whole mind. And the mark of wholeness is that which is encompassed by receptive awareness. This is where we return to health and sanity. Therefore, we spread attention carefully over the body. And by connecting awareness to the breathing, We take its qualities through the whole of the, listen to this carefully, the psychosomatic, reactive, affective, habit-forming, release potential that's called me. I will repeat it. The psychosomatic, reactive, affective, habit-forming, release potential that's called me. So no wonder we just say me. Me. That's way too long a sentence. But it points to a much more inclusive reality of what we are. So I'm going to offer a few possibilities for this calming the bodily formation. And I want to acknowledge the other source that I'm drawing it from because I'm weaving the teachings of the Dhamma with the teachings and practices of Peter Peter Levine. Peter Levine is a scientist. He's the founder of a Mindfulness of the Neurosystem school called Somatic Experiencing. In the public realm, it's mostly known as a school that deeply attends to trauma. But the understanding of the definition of trauma is when things happen too fast for the system to assimilate, and there's some shock, and it just can't Things get locked up. So, we're not talking about like that big trauma that I had in the past, although some of us have it. It's just we as human beings experience shock and trauma in small ways, all of us. So, he um, went out into the wild decades ago and sat quietly, such a spiritual practice, sat quietly for years and watched animals in the wild, watched predator-prey relationships with the basic question. Here are all these animals, and they're about to kill or they're about to be killed. Why are they not traumatized? It's a great question. And what he discovered by observing and not thinking that he knew, he developed into the system that's now called somatic experiencing that changes lives. Um, So I just take some basic principles from that and weave it together with Dharma teachings. The first basic principle is that called orienting. And the way that it ties in with the practice that we're doing here connects with the very first word in the old language, which is called Pali, in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness Sutta. And the first word of the whole teaching, which is another foundational teaching for us, is the word ida. And ida means here. So the whole teaching on how we can be mindful starts with the word here. It says, here, uh, a practitioner sits down, folds their legs crosswise, you know, under a tree, mindfully they breathe in, mindfully they breathe out, and continues from there. But it starts with this here. And so it's easy to go, okay, here I'm meditating, here. Here it's not the idea of here the same way it's not the idea of a breath it's the actual here and if we don't bring the body and the nervous system with us what happens is we sit down and we close our eyes and we try to be mindful breathing in and breathing out but the system is agitated from the root of the nervous system and because of that agitation what happens is endless bursts of thoughts and emotions which we can work with but we can also work with it from the root. So in this case, one of the ways we work with it from the root is not an instruction you'll get very often in insight meditation. But for some of us it sometimes it is very free, And that is that we use our eyes and we use our necks and we actually look around so that from a nervous system level, we're landing here. Now you can tell yourself, I'm an adult, and I know, I'm in a meditation hall. That's true. And we've just completely othered the ancient part of our experience of being human that just wants to know and direct experience that we're here. So this kind of thing works a lot better if you try it out so that I'm not just talking and you're going, Huh, use my eyes, use my neck, look around. Just like, try it out. Look around either side. Check out the ceiling. Look and find out how many doors are in this hall. The nervous system loves to know where the doors are. And we need to use our eyes and see and not just say, I know there's a door here and here. There are two exits. It likes to see, to know from the inside. So when we're coming in new to a retreat and we haven't been somewhere, and we walk in a new room, we start to feel a little disconnected, a little agitated, a little dissociated maybe. We can use our eyes necks and just look around and welcome ourselves into the space that we're in. Not in theory. Sit down and go, oh, I'm welcoming myself here. I mean, that's great too. But actually in practice. You're sitting in meditation and the reactivity has gone through the roof and you've tried every tool you know and it's still really hard. Maybe just open your eyes and look at the beautiful stained glass and look around for a moment. Just give yourself some space and see if it helps from the root. Simple practices. Nervous system simple. So the biggest problem with these, there's there's two issues. One is we forget to do them. And part of the word um, sati, which is mindfulness, is to remember. So, if mindfulness is not that hard. Remembering to be mindful very hard. We've learned that today, right? So we can remember, and just the simplicity of doing it. So that's the first possibility. The second possibility is sometimes talked about as resourcing, or I talk about it as grounding and settling. And this goes back to another story, famous story in the Buddhist tradition of Siddhartha sitting under the Bodhi tree in what is now known as Gaya, India, once upon a time. There was a young man who had everything, incredible privilege, and there was an inner calling in him that he didn't understand, but they kept calling him louder and louder and louder. These archetypal stories I really like to use in my own spiritual path thematically. I know what it feels like to have a calling. I bet many of us here do. Something called him out of his safe contained world and he left that and walked into the mystery, not knowing. He walked into the darkness that was pregnant with possibility. And he had a lot of adventures on the spiritual path, which I won't go into, but they all landed him at a pivotal moment under this great tree, this great-grandmother tree. And he sat down and said, I will sit here until I either wake up as fully as a human being can wake up or die. Now, that's an intense aspiration, but metaphorically, there are times when we just can feel into that. We don't need to actually sit down and actually die if it doesn't work out, but just feeling the depth of our aspiration and not playing small with it and going, well, that won't work out, so I'll just shove it down. Let your intention be as big as it is. And so he sat down, and as the story goes, everything that might interfere with his full awakening came to visit and tried to take him off his seat You know, the craving, the lust, the fear, the terror, and oh, as one of the stories goes, the self doubt. Who do you think you are to be sitting under this Bodhi tree thinking that you, of all people, is going to get enlightened? What if he had believed that story? We would be sitting here at maybe a Christian meditation retreat. What if he'd believed that story? It's high stakes, actually, this choice to believe our story, to not believe our story. We come back around and believe our story again because it's a habit, and then we put it down again, and every putting down counts. And so all of this happened, and as that story goes, because there's kind of several versions of this story, who do you think you are to be sitting under this tree? He took refuge, he put his hand on the earth a power greater than himself. And he said, the earth is my witness to this aspiration to awaken the power of it, the depth of it, the longevity of it. May it be so. And it was so. Because miracles do happen. I've been teaching long enough to see that that's true. Not often. We can't control them. <laughs> and they often aren't what we think they would be. You know, So be on the lookout for miracles. Why not? Not like the one that you thought would happen when you were a kid, or how people told you it would be, but just be on the lookout for miracles. Small, big, unusual, amazing. I mean, why not? We're so often on the lookout for tro- trouble. Why not be on the lookout for miracles? Or how about just grace? So he put his hand down, and the awakening process fully manifested through him. And the next part of his story began. And that's what happens. We set our aspiration, and we practice, and the next awakening moves through us, because there are many awakenings in many different forms. And then the next part of our story begins. So we can do this. Reactive energy tends to move up in the body. Anxiety moves up. Startle moves up. We go, and even though we breathe again, sometimes our nervous system stays up here, and we don't know it. And so the simplicity of using mindfulness to bring awareness and attention down into these four amazing portals for reactive discharge. Portals are the palms of the hands, and the soles of the feet. And these are portals to discharge reactivity. And all we have to do is remember to feel them. If you like grounding by feeling your feet, feel your feet. If you prefer your hands, feel your hands. Whatever's easier. If you've got feet pain, use your hands. you got hand pain, use your feet. If they both hurt, use your sits bones. If everything's hurting without exception, put your hand on the earth. The way Siddhartha did, and take refuge because you deserve it. And so we'll talk in the meditation instructions tomorrow some, some more specific ways to use this to support energetic and uh, emotional reactive discharge. We can also go out on the land here and just sit or stand or walk under a tree, one of these statues, you know, simple rituals, finding a rock, placing it down, I don't need to carry this story here. I'm going to take the story and put it in a rock and place it on the earth and put it down. All of this supports grounding. The last principle I want to mention is the principle of pendulation. People often ask me, people have said to me, I've never even heard this word before, pendulation. What does it mean? Basically, it just means moving back and forth between two things. You know, It's like a pendulum, Pendulation. So sometimes the body on the body's terms is uncomfortable, right? How many of you experienced discomfort in the body today? Let's just normalize it. It wasn't just you. OK? So everybody who was still cognizant enough to kind of get their hand up at this point in the teaching, raise their hand. It's not just me. It's not just you. The bodies get uncomfortable. I call meditation an extreme sport. Because unless you spend a lot of time sitting on the ground or sitting really still in a chair, we're building muscle groups we don't have, even if we have a daily meditation practice. Extreme sport. So with the discomfort, um, it tends to, even if it's a low discomfort, it tends to call our attention there. I'm sure you've noticed. Oh, I'm supposed to be with the breath, but my shoulder's killing me. Oh, I'm supposed to be with the breath, but my shoulder's killing me. What do I do? It's like, okay, this is a practice for that. You can do it right now as I'm saying it. We'll play with it again tomorrow morning. So, you know, somewhere in your body that's less, less than comfortable. Maybe you put a hand there. You know, it's a kind thing to do, put a hand there. You don't have to. And we're just gonna take three breaths into the place that's less than comfortable. So second foundation of mindfulness is that we have these three tones of experience, pleasant and pleasant and neutral, this is unpleasant. So we're taking three breaths with the unpleasant sensation. And then we're taking more than three breaths with anywhere in the body, it has either a neutral sensation or a pleasant sensation and I know that you might get tugged back to where it hurts but just try to stay with where it's neutral or pleasant and take a whole bunch of breaths there just acknowledging right there there's no toothache. And then if we were continuing to work the pendulation principle, we'd go back and take three breaths with either where it used to hurt or where it still hurts. And then we go back and forth. Because the thing is, even though pain as a direct experience can develop an incredible amount of concentration, the body and mind get exhausted. We get burned out, actually, after too long. So with some unpleasant sensations, we can take more than three breaths before we pendulate, but I just call it a three-breath model. It's not like three breaths is better. It's just nice to have a model. You remember it. So that we can stay present and not get exhausted because it's so much more valuable to stay present with one breath with a strong, difficult emotion than try to stay there longer and get lost and fog out. Same thing with body sensations. Less is more. Less is more. So those are just a few possibilities for play and reflection. I thought I'd end with this poem by Persia Gerstler. It's called Finally. Finally on my way to Yes. I burn into all the places where I said no to my life. All the unintended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin and bones. Those coded messages that sent me down the wrong street. Again and again, where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections, And I lift them, one by one, close to my heart, and I say, holy, holy, holy. So we'll just rest for a few moments and see, do we need one of those practices? Do we just need a hand on the heart? See what resonates, let the rest go. Accessing our own wisdom from the body itself in the quiet moments.